The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressures from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the involving ESG space, one topic at a time. I'm Chris Raddy, Senior ESG Credit Analyst, and your host for today's episode. Today we're talking with Aniket Shah, Managing Director and Global Head of Sustainability and Transition Strategy at Jefferies. Welcome, Aniket. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. You know, I'm hoping to discuss kind of where we are in the energy transition, where we're headed, what investors are facing. Um, maybe short to medium trends you're seeing or expecting. Um, but I'd really like to jump right in with the U.S. because we're facing a lot of paradoxes. You know, fossil fuels still 80% of you know energy, basically. But there's been a ton of investment recently. And the Biden administration has claimed to be focused on and willing to spend on the issues. You know, the IRA was passed. But do you think we're going to see meaningful results? And, and what are some of the other plans or proposals you, you see coming? Well, it's great to be here, and that's a great place to get started. One of the positive surprises for the energy transition crowd over the last couple of years has been the Inflation Reduction Act. If you'll recall, a couple of years ago, everyone thought that that bill was dead and that there was going to be no significant major public investment from the Biden administration on the energy transition. And then out of nowhere came this compromise bill, which initially the experts had put as a 300 to $400 billion spending program. And now some estimates have said that that could be upwards of one to $2 trillion of investment in energy transition, mostly through tax credits. So the key question is how significant is it and can these actually can these tax credits pot potentially persist um, in a election year? Because of course, 2024 is a major election year here in the United States and all around the world. My view about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it is an important signal that the United States is putting out to the world that is leading to real investments. However, Chris. We are soon going to hit up against some very real roadblocks. And these roadblocks, if not addressed, will actually slow down and negate the potential positive impact of the IRA when it comes to energy transition and decarbonization. By far the single biggest roadblock when it comes to the build out of renewables in this country is the grid. And we at Jefferies have been writing about the grid now for well over a year helping our clients understand if we don't solve 
for the problems of the interconnection queues, where there are now literally thousands of gigawatts of projects, renewable projects that are waiting in the interconnection queues. If we don't solve that issue, and it's a policy issue, a lot of these projects are going to die on the vine. And although we are starting to see some movement from FERC, I'm uh, not very optimistic about that. I'm also not very optimistic about permitting reform to the scale of what's required for some of these grid projects to be built in time for the energy transition. The second roadblock that the United States is going to come up against is the worker worker shortages when it comes to building out renewables. It's not a very sexy topic, but estimates are uh, anywhere between half, we're short between half a million and a million electricians that are required yeah. to do all of the solar installation and the HVACs and so on. You can't do that overnight. You need a real system and you need a real plan. And I don't see that happening either. And then the third roadblock that we see, which is a significant one, is trade tensions with China. The idea that the U.S. can build the manufacturing capacity to do all of this internally is a joke and it's not going to happen. And so, again, the IRA is significant. Real investments have been made on the back of it. But these roadblocks, these real structural roadblocks need to be assessed and need to be overcome um, in order for the IRA to have its impact. And I'm not seeing those being solved anywhere close to what's needed. Right. Uh, I mean, you kind of pointed to one of the major roadblocks being, you know, permitting and and some of the regulations that we're seeing. I mean, obviously, there's in the U.S., there's been some anti-ESG movement that we've seen. and, and that's obviously a growing risk as we see states contradict federal. Um, so like the SEC climate uh, disclosure requirements are, are coming to mind where states are, are threatening litigation. Um, permitting is obviously an issue. Uh, in California recently, you know, they, they changed some rules. So solar companies are going out of business because they can't get as much solar done. Um, what are your thoughts on, on some of the potential opposition that that, that we're seeing and the misalignments maybe between state and federal? The ESG backlash in the United States has been uh, vociferous and voracious over the last couple of years. I think even for those of us who are quite, um, you know, uh, quite clear-headed when it comes to the analytics of U.S. politics, um, we were caught a little bit by surprise by the scale of the backlash. And what's important to note about the ESG backlash is that so much of it, Chris, in my opinion, comes from a lack of clear definitions of what this project is all about and what the goal of this project is all about. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about ESG investing in the capital markets, to us at Jefferies, ESG is not about solving environmental, social, and governance problems. It's about better analyzing those issues, these externalities, these intangibles, in order for an investor to make a better investment decision. For others, the ESG movement is about solving climate change. It's about solving social disparities and so on and so forth. And frankly speaking, Chris, I think the investment industry was playing fast and loose with how they were using the term and they got caught out. And they got caught out quite real 
And now that's created a whole host of problems for the largest investment managers in the world. So that's the first point I would say is that there wasn't very clear articulation about what ESG means, and that has led to a lot of this. The second point is around the energy transition and Which about is yeah why a lot of asset managers stopped using ESG as their that's right. buzzword, right? They, they've pulled way back from ESG as a buzzword, maybe still using sustainability or sustainable practices, but ESG has kind of been quietly not talked about as much. Absolutely. We've taken it out of our titles because it, it was just creating a really negative reaction, whereas the work that we do is, is pretty standard and uh, non-offensive. And so, yes, the term has certainly been vilified now, and I don't think we're going to be hearing a lot of ESG right. in the United States in the years to come. W when it comes to the energy transition, I think it's important for folks to always remember that the United States is a fossil fuel superpower. You know, we are we have such a large and dynamic economy here in the United States. People often think, oh, the U.S. is a financial hub of the world, which it is, or United States is a technology hub of the world, which it is. But the U.S. is also an oil and gas superpower. Mm -hmm. And so it's only it's only uh, uh, predictable that we are going to see a response from the fossil fuel industry through political means right. when it comes to the pace of the energy transition. Now, let's talk about this in in the real policy and politics of it all. Um, as you know very well, Chris, over 60, in some estimates, over 80% of the Inflation Reduction Act investments have gone to Republican states and Republican congressional districts. So the biggest beneficiaries of the IRA investments in solar, in wind, in batteries are districts that have supported p politicians who didn't vote for this. And let me remind folks on who are listening that not a single Republican, not one in the House or the Senate voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. And according to recent tracker that we've come across, there have been over 30 attempts by House Republicans to turn over the IRA. So I think we are in a pretty precarious situation when it comes to the longevity of the IRA tax credits. And I think this is something that investors are going to have to keep in mind. This is why, Chris, in my work at Jefferies, I've actually spent more time looking at the bipartisan infrastructure bill as the guide for what may in fact have bipartisan support mm -hmm. when it comes to the energy transition as opposed to the IRA. Mm -hmm. And the bipartisan infrastructure bill is quite interesting because there is a significant investment in hydrogen mm -hmm. um, and the desire to build these hydrogen hubs, which President Biden just recently announced. And the second very interesting part of the infrastructure bill is investments in the creation of direct air capture hubs, mm -hmm. a technology that I'm very interested in because I think carbon remo removal is going to be a significant part of the energy landscape in the decades to come. And then I'm also very interested in all the investments in the grid. 
um, and the building a better grid um, um, effort, because I think that is also something that we all can appreciate will um, uh, benefit both Republican and Democratic states and districts. So, look, I think there's a lot to be unpacked here, especially in an election year. But our clients are all trying to figure out what will be investable if there is a change in administration or a change in the power center in Washington. And we advise them to look at the technologies and the sectors that have bipartisan support. The other one I would add to that, by the way, is nuclear, mm -hmm. where it seems like Republicans and Democrats are coalescing around a pro-nuclear uh, a worldview, which is something that you couldn't have really imagined even five or 10 years ago. Right. Right. I mean, you've you've already jumped into one of my next questions, which was, um, you know, looking at some of the strategies that, that could be impactful going forward. And carbon removal was, you know, one that I had on my mind as we're seeing huge um, investments in, in that technology, but, you know, other solutions you alluded to, but is there, is there any others that you want to elaborate on a little more or think are really going to be impactful going forward? At the global level, it's important to just state clearly, and these are numbers that um, come, of course, from the excellent work at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, um, that in 2023, the world will have invested roughly uh, $1.8 trillion to $2 trillion, somewhere in that ballpark, in the in low-carbon technology. Uh, a corollary to that data point, Chris, that I love is that more money will have been invested last year in solar than in oil. Think about that. That is so hard to even imagine. The amount of solar installation that happened last year is up 600x compared to 20 years ago. So my point in saying all of this is that we are seeing exponential adoption curves now in a whole bunch of technologies, in solar, in wind, in electric vehicles, even in battery technologies. And these exponential curves, they're starting from a pretty low base. But as you know, one of the exciting things about exponential change is that th these compound growths mean that in a few years, you're at really sizable numbers. And this is true in the United States, and it's true globally. And of course, in many of these areas, China is truly the world's leader because the amount of investments that they are making oftentimes dwarfs uh, the rest of the world. To be very practical about this, what I would say to listeners of this podcast is you should Follow the work and the thinking of organizations like the Rocky Mountain Institute that have done a very good job articulating exponential change and exponential adoption curves of technology. And what some of their work has shown is that it takes the same amount of time to go from 0% to, uh, uh, to 5% of a new technology's adoption as it takes to go from 5% to 50%. So once you hit that 5%, level, the ex you start hitting these exponential adoption curves. And we're going to see that over the next several years for a whole bunch of technologies. We're going to see this for batteries. We're going to eventually see it for sustainable aviation fuels. We're going to eventually, eventually see it for uh, carbon removal technologies. And you should, people should plot where these different technologies are in these, in these adoption rates. Because if, when you do that, you can start getting a sense of 
what might be the next solar or what might be the next electric vehicle uh, 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 technology. And those will be things that you will want to invest in. Yeah. Well, those are very good points because obviously, you know, as the technology comes, it does take a while to ramp up and, and get scale. But once it hits scale, you know, you see that exponential growth. Um, Europe seems to be a, a country that's a little more unified than the U.S. maybe in terms of some of these climate changes and, and attacking the issues. Um, you know, they're they're really kind of trying to lead a charge towards a net zero world. But there's also a lot of studies that talk about uh, emerging economies that are playing a critical role. So maybe like a two-part question, which which other countries do you think are, are kind of leading um, and what role do you see emerging economies playing Um in a net zero world. Let me just say a few words about Europe and then we can talk about emerging markets sure. if that if that's okay with you. It's important to note that the OECD, which is the club of high income countries all around the world, US, bunch of European countries and a few Asian countries, um, peaked emissions actually in 2007. So for the high income world, and now, let me be very clear, the peaked emissions at very high per capita CO2 emissions, but we are starting, we are seeing a decline of emissions on a per capita basis. In Europe, Europe has been, I would say, at the forefront of that. Um, we are starting to sense, though, um, in our research and our work and our discussions with clients um, all around the world, that there may be the beginnings of a backlash to the energy transition and ESG issues in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start to see whether how real that is, Chris, this year with the elections in the UK, um, with the European Parliament elections that are going to happen in the first half of the year. Uh, and let me just be very clear that in all of these elections in Europe, and I would argue all around the world, uh, ESG slash energy transition is on the ballot. Yeah. Voters are absolutely going to vote whether they support all of this state inter intervention um, in order to decarbonize the world uh, and to decarbonize these countries. And we were just looking at some recent survey work of what's on the mind um, for European voters. And by far, when asked um, in a recent Eurobarometer survey, um, what are the most important issues facing your country? The most common response by far was cost of living at 45%, followed by the economic situation at 18%. Mm -hmm. And so if energy transition comes at the cost of cost of living right. and of the economy, I don't know how much support there actually will be. Right. Now, I don't think the, the outcome can be as divergent as here in the United States, where you have one political party which basically doesn't believe in anthropogenic climate change. That, I don't think we're, we don't have real examples of that in Europe, but we're starting to see some pretty loud voices on the anti-climate, anti-energy transition discussion. And I think we're gonna follow that very, very closely. And I would suggest for, for listeners whose priors lead them to the the perspective that Europe is always going to be at the cutting edge of energy transition ESG, I would just put a question mark on that prior uh, uh, going into 2024. In terms of your other question about emerging markets, look, um, you can't have a discussion 
about energy transition globally without having a very good understanding of what's happening in China. And China is, of course, well over 30% of global CO2 emissions, I think 34, 35% of global CO2 emissions of China, which, by the way, just to put that into context, the United States is 12% of global CO2 emissions. Of course, our per capita emissions are much higher here than in China. But as a total sum, China is by far the largest emitter. And yet at the same time, China is also the largest investor in solar, is the largest investor in wind, is the largest rollout of electric vehicles. You're now seeing that the largest EV uh, a company in the world by sales is a Chinese company. It's not an American company. So the big question around China, we think, um, and, the, and the data point that I think the energy transition world should be really asking and studying is when does China peak emissions? And there are many analysts who think that that might happen actually in 2024, which would be a watershed moment because the Chinese government, the goal was to do this by 2030. And if they reach that goal six years earlier, then I think that's a very bullish view of where China is in terms of energy transition yeah. investments and solar investments and wind and so on. Mm -hmm. The other country that we are really interested in um, at Jefferies, and as you know, um, we've written about a great deal, and I recently uh, took over a dozen global investors to, to go and study, is, is India. Mm -hmm. um, India is very interesting because India's emissions over the short and potentially over the medium term too will rise. Let's not forget that India's per capita CO2 emissions are around two tons per capita. Uh, that number in China is closer to 10 tons per capita and that number in the United States is closer to 15 tons per capita. So India starts at a very different place than China does um, and certainly than the high income West does. And yet the potential for renewable energy in India is astronomic. Uh, the, the resources for solar, the resources for wind are very, very positive. Mm -hmm. And India sees a renewable energy industry as strategically important because it allows the country to have energy independence and not be so uh, in in uh, the throes of global energy politics in order to fuel their own country. Now, I think when we look at India, which, as you know, has been the best performing equity market uh, or one of the best performing equity markets in the world and one of the definitely best performing emerging market um, equity markets in the world, um, some of the things that we have to um, figure out are the following. Um, number one is the coal question right. in India. Yep. Our view at Jefferies is that India is going to have an exponential growth in renewables and coal demand in India is also going to increase. And both stories are true at the same time. And what you have to remember, Chris, is that India has over 200 years of coal reserves. So for them to keep that underground and not use is a tough it's a tough ask right. especially when entire states especially in eastern india their economies are tied to the coal industry so the first question is what happens to coal in india and do we see a peaking of coal earlier than uh, projections i think that will happen earlier than what most people think 
because of pure economics, because mm -hmm. solar uh, and wind plus storage is becoming so much cheaper uh, than um, coal. The second question in India that's very interesting is what do the big players do? Uh, so much of the energy transition story in India depends on companies like Reliance Industries, companies like Adani. These are huge businesses yep. that have major capital expenditure programs, and they can really change the direction of India and energy transition by their own decision making. So we'll be following a handful of companies to get a good understanding of, of what's happening there. And then the third thing that we're really interested when we when it comes to India is how much international support does India get in order to continue to grow, but to do so in a low carbon way. Right. And that is a question of international climate finance and whether India receives grant and low cost concessional financing from the West. I got to say, I'm not very optimistic about that. So we'll we'll have to see around there. So we're very interested in what's happening in China in terms of peak emissions. And we're very interested in India because India will, to us, give us the roadmap of whether a low slash lower middle income country can grow without carbonizing significantly. And we think there's no better case study over the next five to 10 years than India will be. Right. And you mentioned estimates for 2030 for peak um, emissions in China, but you have an estimate or is there an estimate for peak coal in India? Oof. Um, there are many <laughs> estimates for uh, when a coal may peak, but the numbers that we are looking at is that that won't happen until the late 2030s, early 2040s. Right. So still a ton of, ton of coal India, consumption correct. just to help the expansion, basically, right? Correct. That, that, that we're going to see and to get all these other technologies up to scale. That's there. right. Yeah. And I think India finds itself in what could be a complicated uh, position globally because as the 2030s roll around, CO2 emissions globally will likely have peaked and hopefully will start their descent downwards. But India's CO2 emissions may not have peaked, will likely not have peaked. And so there is concern, I think, uh, for some of us analysts in the industry that um, India at the time will then be considered sort of the black sheep uh, um, you know, a country whose emissions are growing at a time when global emissions are falling. But that's why when you study these things, you have to really study where these countries are in their development trajectories and not and, and be careful not to compare apples with oranges. I mean, there continues to be a ton of investment, as we've mentioned. Um, what do you think in terms of new energy financing? Uh, you know, how much more is needed? Is it growing? Will it continue to grow? I mean, I, we know it's growing. But what what are your thoughts on that? What is the is the growth of the financing behind it going to be exponential as well, or are we kind of at good good enough levels, or do we still need a, a ton of investment? I think that as the world continues its energy transition, which by the way has just started, it's important for folks on the line to remember that. You know, uh, and you and I, Chris, were talking about this before we started chatting, which is 80% of the world's primary energy today still comes from fossil fuels, a number that was 84% 20 years ago. So we, we, we have a long ways um, to go. Um, I think in the high income world, so US, Europe, um, Japan, we can talk about in a second, 
because they're doing some very interesting things around transition finance, which, which is a concept we should discuss. Um, I don't think finance is really a stumbling block to the energy transition. Now, very high cost of capital um, will slow things down, but I think we're already see, have seen peak uh, interest rates here in the United States. And as those uh, rates start coming down, I think uh, cost of financing won't be an issue. Where there's a real challenge when it comes to capital is for low and middle income countries. The cost of capital in low and middle income countries, you know, if you are in sub-Saharan Africa or countries in Southeast Asia, you're looking at 10, 15, 20% cost of financing in order to build a solar plant or to build wind. That's simply too high right. for the uh, pace of the build out that's required. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we talk about the, the financial elements of all of this, we should have a much clearer focus now um, in low and middle income countries. And that's why I'm a big believer um, and what I've done my, my doctoral research on is the role of development finance institutions, uh, both institutions like the World Bank and the African Development Bank, but also national development banks as a way to provide long-term low-cost financing to low and middle income countries mm -hmm. to allow them to be able to make major investment pushes. So right. that's what I would say in, 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 the, in that regard when it comes to the financial parts of this. But when you talk to project developers in the high income world today, they really don't see um, access to capital as the stumbling block that it used to be. The stumbling blocks are more things in, which are in some ways, Chris, even thornier, like what we discussed earlier. Um, uh, the grids or human capital and workforce issues or uh, these local domestic requirements for manufacturing to build uh, to build out projects. Those are the real issues that might slow uh, this whole story down. But I think one should be optimistic on in that regard as well, because I can tell you on on grids, for example, um, up until a year ago, Nobody really talked about the grids, right? It wasn't even on people's. I, I mean, energy developers certainly talked about it, but in the larger mainstream financial and business worlds, it wasn't an agenda topic. Now, when we write about this, or today we hosted a call with the International Energy Agency and their work on grids, we get more clients listening to those calls than anything else that we do. So yeah. people are waking up to those issues, and I think that's a good that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the grid, we've we've seen. Um, a lot of different ways that the grids are getting improved, not just in terms of hardening the grids, but then also the connectivity um, and trying to modernize them and get them up and running so that more transmission can go through it from other sources. So we're obviously making strides. But yeah, like you said, a few years ago, it wasn't even on a, a second thought maybe to say. That's but right. Now, um, you kind of mentioned the transition uh, instruments in Japan, but you know my focus is on bonds, so I'd be remiss not to ask you your thoughts on the green finance and markets in terms of the, you know green, social, sustainability bonds. Um, what do you think of the market? Does it have staying power? And then the other part was going to be what other instruments do you see? And I was going to allude to the fact like transition bonds are are now a thing again. Uh, in Japan, but also, you know, blue bonds were thrown around a little bit for a while um, and, and some other debt for nature swaps. So any thoughts on on other types of financing or green financing? 
It's a really wonderful question. Uh, do, do we need a separate bucket of green finance in a world that is greening? I mean, it's, it's a really interesting debate, and there are two sides to this um, uh, argument, like say everything, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think that the whole green finance uh, world did a wonderful job in terms of socializing the idea of large-scale investment in low-carbon technology. Um, I think the amount of money that was capitalized through the debt markets, um, through green instruments, uh, will it'll go down in history as being uh, transformational. Not just the amount of investments that happened, but I think more importantly, Chris, the opening of investors and issuers' minds to the importance of these topics. Um, that said, we're now at a stage where I think standard plain vanilla green bonds mean less and less and less. And you're seeing that in the pricing, um, as you know better than I do. Um, can issuers raise capital more cheaply today um, uh, by issuing a green bond? Nah, it's not quite clear anymore right. in the numbers, right? Has that, that greenium has sort of gone away? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, we can all discuss and debate. But like anything in finance, there's innovation. And where I think that innovation is happening, what I'm very excited about is what's happening in Japan. Um, Japan's GX plan, which was announced last year, is a huge deal, by the way, uh, Chris. And most people who follow the energy transition don't spend enough time studying the size and the scale of what the prime minister um, has put out. Just to put the numbers clearly, um, this GX plan is a 150 trillion yen investment program over the next 10 years, mm -hmm. okay, or investment ambition. Now, if you do the math, that's around a trillion dollars over the next 10 years, or a hundred billion dollars on average per year for the next 10 years. $100 billion on a $4 trillion economy, which is roughly the size of the Japanese economy, would be the equivalent of a $500 billion a year investment program in the United States on our $20 trillion economy. So this is big. We're talking about big money here. Massive. Yeah. Massive. Now, will those will that ambition actually be met? Will we actually get to that? That's, there are huge question marks around that, but the scale of the ambition is important. So that's point number one. Point number two is the financial mechanism that the Japanese government is trying to use in order to spur this investment is the so-called transition bonds. And over the next few weeks, Japan is going to issue sovereign transition bonds um, that the use of proceeds, by the way, um, Chris, are going to go into things that the pure green crowd may not love. It's going to go into things like carbon capture and sequestration and, you know, green ammonia and hydrogen and all of these sort of, um, and I haven't seen nuclear, but it wouldn't surprise me. All these things which the green crowd is says, well, I don't know, is that green? Is that not green? But I think the Japanese government is being very practical. It says, look, we are an industrial economy. And for us, we need to be investing in a transition. Mm -hmm. And this transition is multi-decades. And it means that we're going to invest in things that you may not love from a pure green perspective, but are things that we are going to find important. Um, what's important to also note about how these bonds will be 
uh, paid back is that it there's going to be a significant carbon pricing and carbon uh, uh, market set up in Japan mm -hmm. as a way to fund these bonds. And that's another part of the financial picture when it comes to energy transition and green finance that I think we should discuss at some point, which is whether carbon markets will play an important role in all of this. And I think Japan is going to give us a lot of real life uh, uh, examples over the next five years on how big these carbon markets can, can get. Um, so I'm very interested in uh, what's happening there in the, on the transition side. I think the more uh, plain vanilla stuff, I think that will probably continue, but it will get will be less of the most exciting parts of green finance going forward. Yeah, very good points. And, and some one other question that I had planned to bring up too, in terms of you know a a, a more unified carbon pricing model. You know, I mean. It, does something have to come out of one of the cops, you know, where the world decides, okay, we're going to price carbon the same type of thing so that everybody's on a level playing field? I mean, that'd be a very interesting approach. I, I doubt it happens, obviously. But, um, you know, do we do we need some kind of better pricing mo model or some kind of better carbon taxation model? Uh, what are your thoughts? You're a dreamer, Chris. <laughs> uh, and that's what I, why I like you so much. Look, like, I think that Anyone who's been around the climate discussions um, for the past few decades know that this is probably the one area everyone agrees on, that we need to internalize this externality, um, which is that the damages that we are caused by emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases are not paid for by anyone, and we have to start paying those costs. And there are many ways to do that, and there are many different mechanisms. But at a basic point, I think that's all quite well understood. Um, in globally now, I don't have the number exactly off the top of my head, but World the World Bank keeps this uh, database, and I think we're at around 20 to 25% of global CO2 emissions are under some form of carbon pricing. That is up from less than 10% 10 years ago. So we've seen a larger and larger percentage of global emissions are under some type of carbon pricing. But the weighted average price per ton of CO2 globally is around $5 a ton. That number needs to be more like 50 to 150 for this to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. to, an to answer your question, do I see... Uh, um, um, anything like a global carbon price or carbon tax ever being established? No. Um, that said, one of these sort of sleeper issues out there, sleeper topics that um, is sort of an indirect way of getting at a global carbon price or global carbon pricing mechanism are these carbon border adjustment mechanisms, these mm -hmm. CBAMs. Um, and Europe has actually already begun implementing its carbon border adjustment mechanism. And I, as you know, spend a lot of time in Washington talking to folks from across the aisle and from all the different political parties and political persuasions. And it seems like there's also growing bipartisan support and interest around some type of carbon border adjustment mechanism here in the United States. And that is a way of starting to put global prices 
uh, using national frameworks. Now, you might have then competing carbon pricing mechanisms. You know, let's imagine the U.S. has a carbon uh, a border adjustment mechanism one day and we are importing stuff from China, which has its own emissions trading system and its own carbon price. How those two will speak to one another is a complicated question. But I think, you know, long story short is that to answer your question, yes, carbon pricing is absolutely needed. Um, number two is there will not be a global carbon price. Um, but number three is that we're starting to see the beginnings of these mechanisms and all of us in the business and financial world should follow this closely because it could be an indirect way of getting there. Great. Excellent. I, I think those are some really excellent points, um, especially how Europe, as you said, with the with the border taxes is, you know, they're thinking about it. They're looking at it they're, and we're trying. So I, I think it's all all positive, obviously. Um, you know, I saw an interview you did recently coming out of COP28 where you were feeling pretty positive um, as we're kind of running a little short on time. Are you still feeling pretty positive in, in terms of the steps that we're taking? Uh, climate change, we're attacking it in the right way? Or do you still think this is a very long, arduous process that we're nowhere near solving? I, I would say both. Um, uh, what's the optimistic story? The optimistic story is that uh, we are investing more more in low carbon tech than ever before. The optimistic story is that central banks around the world are thinking about climate change in a serious way, unlike in the past. Credit rating agencies are all now doing much more work pricing uh, climate and other ESG issues. Every single corporate executive I meet, every single investment firm that I engage with, which is basically every investment firm in the world, has smart sophisticated, thoughtful people looking at both the risks and the opportunities of this issue. The optimistic story is also what the International Energy Agency itself has said, which is we have already shaved off one degree Celsius of where we thought the world would get to by 2100 from 2015 to today. So in the last eight years, we have already taken off a degree plus because of the rapid expansion mm -hmm. of renewables, a lot of it was policy enabled. So that's all the optimistic story, and that's real. That's not fake. That's not fake news. You know, this is real investments and real changes in mindset, and I think that's very important. The thing that keeps me up at night um, when it comes to the energy transition is number one, um, and Bloomberg has actually done a very good job writing about this, so kudos to all of you, um, is the whole notion of tipping points, that the climate system could have some nonlinear, irreversible change as we start warming up. Mm -hmm. And once the toothpaste is out of the tube in that regard, it's pretty much impossible to put the toothpaste back in. Mm -hmm. And there are some wonderful academics. We follow the work of... Professor Tim Lenton at the University of Exeter and others, but that have outlined when these tipping points may be hit, what the damages could be, and so on. And we're getting really close to that. So, so the the first thing that worries me a little bit is the time just sort of runs out, yeah. and um, and we could be getting there sooner than any of us um, would like. And the second thing that has me um, worried is. You know, I, I read some statistics or I spoke about some statistics about uh, polling data in Europe 
Um, I'll give you another poll, which I find really amazing about climate change here in the United States, which is two thirds of Americans recently polled say that they are not willing to spend even one dollar a month as a surcharge to their energy bills in order to address climate change. All right. Um, at its very core, we're going to have to pay for things that we haven't paid for in the past. Now, it might be through uh, uh, increased taxation. It might be through higher borrowing costs. It might be through a carbon price. And the in the short term, the energy transition, I believe, is inflationary. Over the long term, it is deflationary because you are going to have very cheap energy, very cheap renewable energy, as opposed to all the volatile prices that come from fossil fuels. But in the up, upfront costs and upfront investments are significant. And I'm worried if that message isn't made clear to voters, then in a year where, by our count, there are over 80 elections this year, uh, 4 billion people, or I should say citizens of countries with a total population of 4 billion people will go to the ballot uh, uh, this year in order to vote for their heads of state and their uh, municipal and congressional leaders. If this whole agenda doesn't get support at the ballot box, we could start seeing a decline of interest. And we should not forget that a lot of the energy transition progress that we've made has been because of policy and that policy can be reversed. And that's this thing that also keeps me up um, at night and something that we're going to be studying very closely in our work at Jefferies. That's excellent. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. I mean, I, I thought we had a, a very in-depth and thoughtful discussion. Um, obviously, if people have any questions or comments regarding any of the content of this podcast, I could read it, reach out to us directly uh, and we could get back to you. But uh, Anakit, thank you very much. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. Great chatting with you. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank all, all of our listeners for joining. You can find more information on climate investments, carbon markets, and a whole array of other topics by going to BIESG on the Bloomberg Terminal, which will open up to our Bloomberg Intelligence Research Dashboard. If you have any ESG quandary or burning questions you would like to ask BI experts, please send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.